Right, so we're um, continuing in our studies in the Bible, the New Testament, uh, and we're looking, and we have been for quite a while, at the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, as you probably remember, this is a letter that was written by uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders in the first century, to a community of believers in a city, a Roman city, called Corinth. It was in the Greek world, but it was very much a Roman colony. That's what it was set up as. Uh, it was like a little mini Rome, really. Every the, all the way that it, it works was very much um, on the Roman kind of model. And they were needing to grow up, as we have seen. Uh, they had all kinds of issues that the Apostle Paul is helping them through. He longed for them to be growing up into like, mature believers as a community and all kinds of issues. And today uh, we come to chapter 11, and we've just had it read to us. And uh, as uh, probably already, if you didn't know this already, uh, you've probably spotted now <laughs> that this is a very challenging passage. It's not an easy passage to get hold of. Now, you know, I sometimes wish we could just kind of leave some bits of the Bible out, you know? Some of the bits you think, oh, I don't understand this, or sometimes I don't understand it, and I don't, uh, don't understand it. Sometimes I don't like it, because I do understand it, and I don't like what I think it's saying. Uh, someone said, it's not the bits of the Bible I, I don't understand that trouble me, it's actually doing the bits of the Bible I do understand. But, but you know, wh- whatever it is, whether you do or you don't, uh, it's here. It's part of God's word, and we we need to look at it. One professor of the the New Testament studies, he's given his lifetime to it, written the biggest commentary on Corinthians that I've ever seen anyway, um, hundreds of pages, um, calls it the most difficult of all of Paul's writings. That's what he says uh, as a professor. So what hope for the rest of us, I wonder? Well, don't despair. That's put you in a good mood, hasn't it, already? But... uh, um, it's difficult. I just want to very quickly talk about why it's so difficult. Uh, you would have noticed some of it. Firstly, some of the language is quite difficult to get hold of. Even in English, there's a problem. It's Paul talking about men and women. The word in Greek for men and for women is exactly the same word as for husbands and wives. So that immediately, you know, the only way you can tell whether he's talking about men generally or, or husbands uh, is, is by the context. And some of you, anyone got the ESV version of the Bible here? Some people use ESV. Um, that version, for example, translates all the way through husbands and wives. They've made a decision to do that. Uh, some translations uh, go for men all the way through, uh, but they, they put the head of the husband, is, uh, the head of the wife is, is the husband in the first verse 3. Uh, and when we can get the language, uh, it, there's, there's literal language and there's metaphorical language here. So when Paul talks about head, sometimes he's talking about the thing that sits on top of your neck, but other times he seems to be talking about something else. And what is, what is he talking about when he's talking about that? Thirdly, he argues here from nature and from propriety. He says, look, it's obvious to you. Well, that was obvious to the Corinthians at their time, in their culture, but unfortunately it's not quite so obvious to us because we don't live at that time and we don't live at that culture. So, you know, it gives us a hard, we've got a hard job trying to figure out, you know, what is appropriate and what are the principles for now as against the stuff that was in the culture then. Fourthly, I'm told, although I'm not, I haven't necessarily seen this myself, but but the people who know about these things will say that this little bit, this, this just bit we've read here, 
is a bit different in style to the other ways he's written the letter. In other parts of the letter, and particularly following on in the next few chapters, he's very strong about, you know, very kind of insistent. He's commanding them to do things. He's saying, this matters very much because of such and such. And in this bit, the start is much more like advice rather than commands. Now, you know, you have to take my word for that, or the experts who, who look at these things will say, this is the case. Fifthly, and and perhaps uh, this is where it really gets more difficult, we come always to the Bible or any other piece of writing with our own agendas. (laughs) And in this one about male and female relationships, our agendas are huge. So there is the whole uh, emergence and uh, kind of understandings brought to us through the rise of feminism over the last 40 or 50 years. That reaction to male oppression of females through through history. And then, of course, there's the counter-reaction to feminism, a kind of a, you know, what do we do about that? Is it good or is it bad? How do we react? So by the time you get to a passage like this, as 21st century people, we've got this big kind of agenda. Are we feminists or not? Do we love what feminism says or should we stand against it? You know, are we kind of reacting against it or reacting against those who react against it? Do you see what I mean? It all becomes quite tricky. And lastly, it is just plain hard to understand this passage, as you've probably noticed. It's about how men and women are to behave in public worship at a particular time, in a particular place. How do we judge its relevance? So, we need to be careful, and we need to be gracious, and we need to be loving when we look at a passage like this. So it is a challenge, but it's a particularly kind of Corinthian type of challenge. That should be coming up, but it doesn't seem to be in the Oh, there it is. It's a Corinthian challenge. We've gone too far now, but uh, we can leave that up. Verse 16. Look at verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious. Now, there's this problem of being contentious. Now, there was a Greek writer called Plutarch who wrote to somebody in the city of Corinth, wrote lots of letters, lots of essays, lots of his writings have been preserved. And when he was writing, nothing to do with the church in Corinth, writing to someone in government in Corinth, he writes about the problems of being in government in a city like Corinth. And he says, the trouble is, it's contentions. And he talks about being contentious. And he talks about strife and envies and jealous rivalries, all the kind of stuff that make teaching in a city like Corinth and uh, being in government in a city like Corinth, very difficult. And he describes what contentions are. Strifes, envies, jealousies, jockeying for position, arguments over status. Does that remind you of anything we've studied in the book of Corinthians so far? Because that was their problem, or one of their problems, was that they were, they were arguing and fighting and jockeying for position and kind of all of that kind of stuff. And it seems to be that Paul is saying, look, you've brought all that stuff into your public worship as well. And we'll see more of that later. So it is a very Corinthian problem. It doesn't mean that it's not our problem, but it's worth bearing that in mind. And this section is all about public worship. It says there at the beginning, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings, that's the traditions. These things that that Paul had already passed them on to the believers at Corinth, ways in which the early church worked and and worshipped when they came together. We'll see a lot of it later on. Paul is saying, what I'm talking to you about is what happens when you come together as a community, community to worship 
to learn, to hear God's word, to share communion, to pray. All of that, what you do together when you're together, when we're together like this as a church community, or when we meet in small groups, or or wherever we're kind of meeting together, it's really important that we realise... That what we are when we're together, what we are when we're in small groups, that kind of reveals what we're really like. It reveals some really important stuff. And Paul is saying to them throughout these chapters, when you come together, you've got to realise that you're, you're, you're meant to be kind of revealing what really matters, what you're really like as a, as a community. And not only that, but what you do when you're together, uh, in small groups or together, will actually shape what you are as well. It's important. For them and for us. Now, um, Captain, I think his name is Francesco. Remember Captain Francesco? Heard of him? Is it Chatino? Is that how you say his name? Well, anyway, whoever he was, however you say, he thought it would be a really cool idea to sail his ship quite close to the island of Giglio recently. Heard that? Now we know who we're talking about, don't we? Uh, he thought it would be great to surprise one of his friends, I believe. It had happened once before with the company's permission. So he thought that would be really cool. But he missed the big picture, didn't he? There was a reef there. I think he claims that it moved since last time he went, but I don't think it had. Something went wrong. See, the Corinthians were doing public worship a bit differently, as we shall see. And in doing that, because it was cool and they quite liked it, or for whatever reason, we don't really know what reason, actually, they were missing something really important. They were missing a really important big picture. And I want us to start thinking about what that big picture is. Here it is in verse 3. You see it there? Paul talks about every man and Christ, every woman or wife and man or husband, and Christ and God. Three pairs of of, of kind of individuals, characters there. Each pair, one is said to be the head of the other. See that? There it is in verse 3. Now here's the question, what does that mean? What does the head of, da-da-da, what does it mean? Now we think of head, if I said to you, what's the head, especially if I said to uh, I can't see him. Peter and Margaret say, uh, Margaret White is, we prayed for them today. Margaret is the head. She's the head of the school. Yeah, Margaret, she's the head. When we talk about head, we think about boss. When we talk about the head, we think about the way we think about our bodies, and we think about our head is like ruling our heart. We think about the head as the thing that controls the body. Now, that was not how pe- people thought in Paul's day. And this is really quite important. In fact, when Paul wrote this, almost certainly they didn't think like that at all. In fact, people said that very few uh, serious Greek scholars thought that it meant head or the one who's the boss, actually until quite recently. If you look at some of the very the, the older, I say older, up to about 1950, 60, 70, it's the tr- traditional classic Greek lexicons, and you look for the meaning of this word head, it's never the boss, it's never the chief, it's never the one who, who's in control, it's something else. 
You see, the body in Greek thinking was not ruled by the head, it was ruled by the heart, by the middle bit of the body. That's where people thought. Even in the Bible, it says in one of the Old Testaments, as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. This list is not a hierarchical list. And, and you can kind of get a hint of that in the way it's written. Look at the order in verse 3. It doesn't stop from the bottom up, if it is a hierarchy, or from the top down, if it's meant to be a hierarchy. No, Paul almost deliberately starts in the middle. The only place that actually doesn't kind of suggest a hierarchical kind of chain of control. So what does head of mean? Well, as I say, up until relatively recently, about 30 years ago, it meant that the, the source, the root, we talk about the head of the river, the place where life comes from. And that was how that, this word was interpreted, as I say, right up until about the 1990s, actually. If you take one of the commentaries by Leon Morris of the Tyndale New Testament, he wrote it in 1958, and he updated it in 1985, and in, in that commentary there in 1985, he's a great New Testament scholar. He says nobody would, no, you know, there's no question that the word head means the idea of source, place where the life comes from, or, or there's a kind of connectedness, really. Now, I need to say that somebody like Wayne Grudem, some of you will have heard of him, and others will disagree with that, and there's a big debate going on in scholarly circles. But I think... The historical aspect is really interesting. The fact that up until about 30, 40 years ago, in serious scholarly circles anyway, there was no problem. And listen, if Paul wanted to say that the man was head over the woman, or Christ was head, uh, or God was head over Christ, then he could have said so. Ephesians 1. Paul talks about Jesus being the head over everything. And by that he means the supreme one. The one who rules far above all principalities and powers. And he says quite clearly, you can look in the Greek, it says, head over everything for the church. So I'm suggesting it's not head over, it's head of. And the big idea then is not about a hierarchy here, but a series of relationships Paul is saying to the believers at Corinth, men and women are linked together, like man and Christ. So it could even be mankind and Christ, actually, and Christ and God. He's saying, look, guys, we're linked together, and we're linked to Christ. And how we worship when we're together must reflect that interconnectedness, that fact that we, that we kind of gain our, our, our life from Christ and from one another. And that needs to be expressed in the way that we worship in public. And in Corinth, they were dishonouring Jesus, and they were dishonouring one another in the way that men and women were leading in worship. When a, a man or a woman, it's both, as we shall see, when a man was praying out loud on behalf of the whole congregation, uh, or, or, or bringing God's word, prophecy is bringing God's word into the situation, they were doing it in a certain way, and when a woman was also praying out loud, leading the congregation, or bringing God's word, both of them were dishonouring God in the way they were doing it. That's what Paul is saying 
in Corinth. That was the problem. And it was for Corinth, it was quite a big problem. And we read about it in verses 4 and 6. 4 to 6. Hope you're with me so far. It's quite hard work this, but it's quite a tough passage. We've got to do the work. So what's the big problem? Well, this is about the only thing in this passage that is absolutely clear what the problem was in Corinth. What was it? Well, it was that men, when they were leading the congregation in prayer and uh, bringing God's word, were doing so with their heads covered. And women, when they were leading the congregation in prayer or in bringing God's word, were doing the same thing but, but without the normal head covering that Roman women, married women, would wear. And in Corinth, that meant something. And in Corinth, because it meant something, they were dishonouring the Lord Jesus. They were sailing, it seemed cool, it seemed like a great thing to do, but they were sailing rather too close to the shore, and problems were going to ensue is what Paul is saying. Now, here's the question. This isn't so clear. As I said, that was the only thing that is clear in this passage. But why would a man wear a covering? You see, so often people have looked at this passage and it's all about women wearing coverings or hats or whatever. But it doesn't start there at all. It says it's about men wearing a covering in worship. So why on earth would a Corinthian man do that? Well, we don't really know, but, <coughs> Emma, I think we've got a statue. Have a look at this statue. That's a statue from the time in Corinth. It was there. would have been there on display. Um, it's actually a st- statue, can you see it, of the Emperor Augustus Caesar. He was an old emperor. He, I think he was dead by then. But, but, you know, he was a defining emperor of Roman law and so on, and a great figure at the time. See what he's wearing? He's wearing his toga, but it's over his head. Do you know why? Because in that inscription, Augustus Caesar was uh, presenting himself like one of the priests of the god that he was, uh, that, that, that was worshipping at. Because the, the pagan priests in the temples would cover, would put like their, their Roman kind of thing over their heads as a sign of their status and their kind of authority. So, of course, Caesar, you know, he was top man, and he was not, he, there were other statues of him appearing as a magistrate. And so he, he presented himself, all part of the PR image, you know, he was top of everything, and, and his topness, as it were, his you know, top dog, top gun, was right, you could see that by the way he wore his toga when he was being like a pagan priest. Okay, got that? Ah. <sighs> So men in Corinth could have been copying that for some reason. Well, why? Because they like the idea of having high status. So when a man, especially if the high, now the, the, it was the high status people who were priests in the, the, the God, the temples and so on. So if a man was leading the congregation in worship, okay, and we read from later in the book of Corinthians that, that it was kind of an open thing, it wasn't just, you know, like the, the pastor or whatever who could lead in prayer or, or bring a word of prophecy. Others could, just as we do here. But it seems like some of the men in Corinth, when they did that, deliberately kind of did that to make themselves a book, b- b- look a bit like him. 
Perhaps they were really high-status people, because there were high-status people in Corinth, as we shall see. And it caused divisions among them. And Paul is saying, if a man is leading worship with a priest's head covering, looking like the emperor, looking like a pagan priest, what's he saying? He's saying, look at me. I'm top gun. I've got status. And what should he be doing? Well, Christ is his head. It's not about him. It should be about Jesus. So he's dishonouring Christ. We don't know for sure, but I think that's quite an interesting explanation that I found, and the statues are certainly there. So why would a man do that? Well, there's a reason. Why would a woman not wear a head covering? It was normal for Roman married women to cover their heads. Roman women who didn't, didn't cover their heads, they're not kind of like a veil, but you know, like that kind of thing over the top of the, to cover the hair. The only ones who didn't do were mistresses or sex workers, because um, uh, as we'll see in a minute, Roman, at the Roman dinners and at the Roman temples, sex was available from women who, who worked there, and uh, that was uh, their sign that they were in that kind of status, was that their heads were not kind of covered in, in, in a kind of covering. So why on earth would Christian women in Corinth be taking off their normal kind of head covering when they were leading the prayer and the worship? And the answer to that is we don't know, sorry. But here's a few possibilities. We do know that high-status Roman wives, right from the time of Augustus through into the the, the following kind of uh, 50, 60 years, were becoming openly and fashionably promiscuous like their husbands. See, Roman men, especially high-status Roman men, were, it was considered quite fine. It was, in fact, it was so legitimate, we've got records of uh, the, the speech that the philosopher made to the married couple on their wedding night, before, this, apparently this happened in some Roman society, before you know, all the guests left to let the couple consummate the marriage. Part of the, one of the speeches was to, to the wife to say, don't forget it's perfectly okay for your husband to have as much sex as he likes with, with anyone he wants to, especially at the dinners, but you have to be completely faithful to him. We've got examples of that. And it seemed that high-status women were actually um, kind of saying, well, I don't think this is very fair. And in Roman society, some of them were casting off their kind of, like taking off their wedding rings, I suppose, going out and, and being available to have as much sex so that they could be as promiscuous as their husbands. So that could be one reason. Possibly, another reason is that some of the women in the congregation, and perhaps the men too, thought, got the idea that now they were in Christ, now they were, were, were like, um, had this idea, they, they were so spiritual, they were like the angels. Remember in 1 Corinthians 7, there's this whole argument, should you get married, should, or should you stop being married, should you stop having sex, because, because you're now too spiritual for all that kind of thing, that kind of idea. We came across it in, 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 in chapter 7. Well, maybe in the same kind of way they were saying, well, it doesn't, you know, it, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. There's no difference between men and women. We're all, you know, we're all spiritual. And so they were kind of casting off their, their normal kind of covering, their head covering, because of that. Or possibly they were just becoming thirdly excited at their new freedom in Christ. They said, well, it doesn't matter, men and women, we're all in Jesus, it's all fine, you know, we'll all be the same, it doesn't matter, oh, no, I'm a married woman, but, you know, I'll just... Uh, or maybe they're just getting excited in the worship and, you know, their, their head coverings didn't matter, or whatever it was, um, it was going. 
For whatever the reason was, though they thought it was fine, everyone else in the culture would have seen it as not being fine. So if someone had gone, gone along to a Christian gathering, and it was led by a woman, a married woman, who didn't have the traditional covering on, people would make certain conclusions about that. And Paul is saying, look, you're still women, you're still, and you're different to men, you're still women married to men, you're not to abandon your marriage, you're not to abandon the honouring your husbands, because as you honour your husbands, you honour the Lord. It could be that. Why did it matter? Verses 7 to 12. Paul goes a little bit deeper and talks about men and women and God. He talks about creation and he talks about the new creation. There's a lot in here. Some of it's quite difficult, but I'm going to whiz through it, make some general comments. It matters, Paul says in these verses, because of something about man. Verse 7. He says, the man is the image and glory of God. Now we know from Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, that it's not just man or male that reflects God's image as we see. It says specifically in Genesis 1 that it's male and female he created in his image. What does it mean by glory? Well, Psalm 8 says that that mankind has been crowned with glory and honour. So as Paul is talking to them, as he talks to the men, because he's addressing, firstly, this issue of men who were wearing coverings, trying to be like the emperor or top dog or whatever, he's saying to them, look, you men as you do this, you're meant to, as human beings, you should be pointing people to God. The, The image of God is what matters. So he talks to the men who are wearing their togas and leading the worship in that way, and he says, look, you should, be, you should be pointing people to God, not yourself. Can you see the frustration in his voice, perhaps? Now, I don't think you should read too much here into what he doesn't say about females. He's, he's tackling the men who are putting the togas on their heads. And he's saying, look, as human beings, as men, you're meant to be reflecting the image of God. So you should do it. Later uh, in the passage, you'll see uh, Paul talks about how man is born of woman. And part of the argument. Now, we don't say, well, Paul doesn't say that um, women are born of women. (laughs) So, you know, know, we build a whole thing. No, he doesn't say women are born of women because that's not his main argument. That's not the point he's making at that point, you see. So it's just because he's saying, look, to the man, you are the image and glory of God... He's, he's not saying that to means that the woman isn't. He's saying that in this argument, I want you to realize that, that men, you know, you're meant to be reflecting God's glory, God's image. So don't dishonor God in the way you lead worship. And then he says there's something about woman. Verse 8. Verse 7b, rather. The woman is the glory of man. Now what's that about? Well, what is it about? Is it too simple to say that the women, kind of, uh, I know this is, a, this is a bloke's perspective, but are, are actually humanity's better half? That generally, you know, they're the ones, if you want symbols of beauty or perfection, you can go right back to Leonardo and, and other places. It's where the woman's form is the, the beautiful one. Is it perhaps saying that? 
Certainly in, in the Genesis account, he goes back to creation, the, the creation of woman kind of completes the man. He's got, you know, he's missing without her. You know, he, when Adam sees Eve, he bursts into song. He says, all right, at last, there's some, you know, someone like me. But, oh, she's nicer than me. You know, that, you know, that, kind, that kind of thing. Um, better not go down that one too far. <laughs> and in that culture, at that time, the way the head was covered was a kind of reflecting that truth. That women were the glory of men. In fact, now, here's a very interesting verse 15. says that, that the woman's glory is in the hair. That's interesting. Again, that meant something in their culture. Maybe it means something today or not. I don't know. But certainly in the culture, the reason the woman, as, as indeed in, in Muslim cultures today, the reason the woman would, would, would cover her hair, it was a kind of sign that her hair, her glory, you know, the best bits of her, as it were, Again, I must be careful here. It's for her husband only. It's kind of part, it was an expression that, that she completed, the, you know, the, the deal. That she was the glory of, of man. And Paul says that when a woman in that culture kept the covering on, as it were, covering symbolically the fact that she was, you know, better than men. And she was, you know, in that one sense, that kind of the beauty was all in her. Paul says that when she does it, it was like, it says here, having it in the the verse 10, it isn't in the original. It literally says she has authority on her head. When when she's got that covering on, she's got authority on her head. And lots of translators say, well, that means it's a symbol that she's under the man's authority. It might be, I don't know. But the really interesting thing is that the only time authority is mentioned in this passage is here, when the woman's got authority on her head when she's leading the worship. Unless, of course, you read, you know, head of the company, head of the store, head into the reference to Kefale head earlier on. Anyway... As a woman leads in prayer or prophecy, the woman is saying, I'll hide the glory of mankind. I'm going to behave as normally as I would in public. And this is a sign, as I take authority in that context, I'm pointing not to me, but to God. Is that what it's about? So whether it's men or women in leading in prayer, speaking prophetically, Paul is saying you want to be pointing to God, not to yourself not to each other. And their cultural symbol of a head covered or head uncovered worked like that at that time. Thirdly, it matters because of something about women and men together. Verses 7 to 9 and 11 to 12. A bit more about creation. How did it work? How we're kind of wired, as it says, man is completed by woman. Woman was made from man. But every man that ever lived came out of a woman, apart from Adam. See? What's Paul saying? Well, he makes it pretty clear, doesn't he? There's more. In the Lord, the man, the man and the woman are not independent of each other. And he says that twice. He says man is not independent of woman, and woman is independent of man. He makes that really clear, because in the Lord... There is a mutuality, there's an interdependence. It's a great way of Paul speaking about what it is to be a believer, to be different, to be in the Lord. Men and women together, meant to be interdependent. That, I believe, is, 
is what God wanted in creation. It's what the new creation is about. It's what Jesus has brought into being. That's why Jesus didn't treat women like everyone else in his culture. It's why actually, if you look into the New Testament, there are examples of men and women in leadership. Hey, in Romans 16, there are even women who are apostles listed in Romans chapter 16. And I know ink has been spilt to say, oh, the, the, the male word, it must be wrong. People say, oh, there can't have been women apostles, so it must be a mistake. The name must have been a female one, not a male one. Anyway, man and woman together. That's why it matters. And it, lastly, it matters, says Paul, and this is a really weird thing. Look at verse 10. <laughs> it matters because of the angels. Well, woo, what is that about? Well, I don't know <laughs> is the answer. But I did find something that I found very interesting. Because of, uh, angels simply means messengers. They could be angelic beings who are watching on. What about the idea of, uh, of what if... What if we, when we worship together, as men and women in Christ, what if, you know, the angelic hosts, I think the Anglican prayer has this idea that, that we're being watched. And that what are they looking at? They're looking at what God has done. They're looking at what the new creation is going to be like. They're looking at what's going to be in heaven one day, or who's going to be there. Albeit imperfect and so on here, but he's got a little taste of, of heaven, men and women, in relationship to one another, in relation to Christ. Perhaps that is what Paul is saying. Men and women leading worship as men and women, not independent but interdependent, honouring the Lord and each other. Or, it could mean simply messengers. The word angels just means messengers in Greek. And uh, I'm going to have to rush a bit now. But uh, a messenger can be somebody who goes with a message. A messenger could be someone who goes to Josh and gets a message from him and brings it back. Now, it's very possible because Christian worship drew attention. You know, the only people allowed to meet weekly in the Roman world under Roman law were Jews. Because meeting as a bunch of people for worship together was not done in pagan times. And the government thought it could be seditious if that happened. Now there was an exception in Corinth and you can read about that in the book of Acts. But the point is people were watching what was going on. What, was going on? what are these people? Are they politicos? Are they trade unionists? Are they some weird cult? They're meeting in that person's house. Hey, go along. Find out and bring me back a message what's going on. And that's what this could mean. It could mean that Paul is saying, hey, guys, you're being watched. People are talking about you. And when somebody goes and has a look in at your meeting, now certainly in 1 Corinthians 14, he actually says, there'll be unbelievers among you and they need to know that God is with you and they'll be falling down in worship and praising him when they're with you. It could mean that Paul is simply saying that. Be careful. What will people think? When they return with the message, when the messenger goes back and tells the person who sent him, well, I'll tell you what's going on. All the women are like prostitutes there. You know, you know when we go to a dinner and, and the, the sex workers are the ones that come in without their heads covering? Well, believe me, the people leading the worship are, are like that. They must be, there's a word, heratai, I think, heratai in, in Latin, that, that describe women of that status. Could be that. Or, you know, the men leading the worship, yeah, they look like pagan gods. Yeah, they're, they're pretty good, you know. They've even got the emperor look over their head when they're leading the You know, is that what it's about? Could be, we don't really know. 
And then Paul says some more comments about the length of hair, which I really am not going to go into because I don't understand. They seem to be completely cultural, and I think we need to stop and just get some main lessons out of it. So, that's in verses 13 to 15. So, in this church at Corinth, what's happening? Well, it seems that men, and we've seen this in other parts of the letter, were jockeying for top gun position. Now, we don't do that, men, do we? Do we? We do, don't we? Seen a bunch of men together? You know, who's best? Who's going to be the top, top dog, top gun? And Paul is saying, when you do that in the way that you lead worship, you're dishonouring God. When you do that. Women are saying that the difference between them and men don't matter anymore. They're abandoning the symbols of their marriages. They're drawing attention instead to their great hair, <laughs> which is their glory, and not usually seen. And they weren't pointing to Jesus. And there's this word spreading all around the town about the Corinthians as the messengers possibly passed on all the goss from what was going on in the Corinthian gathering. Now this, you know, that isn't the answer. I don't think I've cracked this at all. But it's one way of looking at it. I said, let's be sensible, gracious about it, loving. Well, now we don't have the same cultural symbols, do we, in our culture? It doesn't really matter whether your heads are covered or not. It doesn't mean anything in the way that it did to the believers in Corinth. So, you know, how do we apply this? What can we learn then? What's the message for us? Well, here's a few questions that I, I think it'd be good as we go, as we go to coffee, in-house groups, think about it during the week. Here's some questions. When we gather together in your house group, when you're with other believers as a whole church family together, are we really honouring our head? In our serving, our leading in others in prayer and praise, what is it really all about? That's a good question to ask ourselves at any time. And how can we tell what it's really about? What are our cultural symbols? What are the cultural symbols in our world that indicate and make clear that there is a difference between men and women? We're not all androgynous the same. And so, secondly, do we worship together or hear God's word together in ways that, when we're leading, are appropriate as men and women? Because men and women are different. And and how is that difference seen? You know, are we trying to be like each other or, or, or approaching worship and praise as men and women, each in our own way, pointing not to ourselves but towards God, towards Jesus? Here's another question. How can the way that we function as a fellowship, as we think about serving together, so lots of us are in teams in the church and in the CU and other places, the navigators, places where you serve. How can you function in that way that you know, kind of celebrates the difference between the way men do things and women do things, as it were? I think there's something really great about the fact that I enjoy Sundays like today when Lou leads and I preach. And, and you may have noticed Lou speaks, preaches, I preach, but we do so differently. Have you noticed that? And that's not just because we're different people, but she preaches, teaches as a, as a woman. I do it as a man. You know, I, don't, I don't try and be, be like a woman preaching. And if you're going to be speaking women, don't try and be like a man. Be a woman under Christ's authority and, uh, and lead in, in that way, appropriately. So that's a good question. And how can we be dependent upon each other? 
And last of all, do we realise that we're being watched? Let me finish with a story, then I'll shut. A friend of mine, first met him in 1997, so I, don't, I see him very occasionally. Now, he's a pastor of a church in Nepal. He's a man called Grishma. Grishma Parajuli. He's from a, a high-caste Hindu Brahmin background. And uh, do you know how he became a Christian? Uh, in, in the late 80s, at the time when it was illegal for Christians to share the gospel in Nepal or baptize people in Nepal, he heard about a church and he thought he'd go along to report them, to spy on them and report them to the authorities to get them in trouble. And he went along and he met with the Lord. He was watching, but he found Christ and he's now a, a key leader in Nepal. We're being watched, whether it's angels or other people. Do we realise that? The way we live our lives, in the way we are together, in the way we function as believers. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, this isn't, you know, this is just how I see it at the moment. Let's talk about it if you think I've missed something or you're offended by what I've said. It's, uh, it's a tough passage, a difficult passage. No one's got the right answer, but let's pray that God will lead us to honour him in the way that we as men and women worship, serve, lead together for his glory. Amen.